0: This is a podcast of the Church of Indian Lake. Unpack that today because we're going to look at that from a Christian standpoint, a Christian view, and a Christian worldview and allow God to shape the answer to that question. And so in order to do that, I want to go to Romans chapter one because we're going to start off with several scriptures. And then I'm just going to unpack these scriptures for you and and, and unpack this concept. And the Bible has six Main passages on homosexuality, three of them are in the Old Testament and the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. And we also have the Levitical law, and we're not really going to get into that today for the sake of time. But there are three passages in the New Testament. Jesus never hit this um, subject head on, but he was very clear that marriage is to be between a male and a female. He said that several times. So by that, he certainly answered that question himself. And then Paul addresses this subject three different times. And Romans chapter 1 is where I want to start because, in my opinion, and, and you'll see it too, it's very clear. In verse 26, it says, For this reason God gave them up to dishonorable passions, for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. Verse 28, and since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. So if you take the scripture and just look at that, there's several things that you see there is that there is a natural uh, course of nature and that's for a man and a woman to be united in marriage. And when that moves into the area of sexuality, the natural course is for a man and a woman, both biologically and from God's standpoint, to be involved sexually. But according to the scripture, when men and women give up that idea and they begin to take up passion for the same gender, things just get progressively worse, or regressively worse is a better way to put that. There, there seems to be this sense that as men or women begin to engage with sexual relationships with the same gender, that, that there's a sense that it gets worse and worse until there's a delusion, and it begins that which is unnatural, begins to feel natural to them. So that's a baseline to what the Scripture says. Baseline to what God says about that. And we see that expanded a little bit further. And we go to 1 Timothy chapter 1. And in this part of the Scripture, Paul is explaining why there was laws. Why there were rules. Why there was an Old Testament. And starting with verse 9, he says this. Understanding this, this is 1 Timothy chapter 1 verse 9. That the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane. Now that's quite a list right there. So we we find out the law is for, you see those adjectives there, ungodly, uh, lawless, disobedience, and the unholy, the profane. And then here we go. Now the Bible gives us a list of what those things are. Because we... We might try to determine, well, what's ungodly, or what's unholy, or what's profane? But the Bible begins to give a list, and it goes like this. For those who strike their fathers and mothers. For murderers. The sexually immoral. Men who practice homosexuality. Enslavers. Liars. Perjurers. And whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. So we see right within there that homosexuality is listed as something that is ungodly and unholy. I want to note that it's not the only thing listed. And that's part of what you're going to hear today. It's part of a list. It's part of a list. And each one of those sins are serious. Each one of those sins should be avoided. But the truth is this. Homosexual behavior is a sin. Period. That's the truth. If you believe the scripture and you believe the Bible and you believe that by God's word, that, that is true. Homosexual behavior is a sin. But I want to point this out because how does that flesh out in community? Here's the truth. Even though it is clearly a sin and it's clearly a sin with some really, really harsh consequences. In fact, all sexual sin is different than other sin and the fact that it's a sin we we commit against our own bodies and so there's some consequences to that. But in light of access to heaven, in light of our holiness before God, in light of our position before God, homosexuality is not different than any other sin that was on those lists that we just read. Any other sin that probably all of us have been somewhere on that list before and I want to say this because I want to talk about three kinds of responses to homosexuality today there's three kinds of responses that I want us to discuss and the first one is this is a wrong response and parenthetically I'm going to say the church a wrong response and I'm going to suggest that the church of the last 35 to 40 years has in some ways had a wrong response I remember when I first moved here to Tennessee, it was in the mid-90s, uh, I was in college, and I went to a church rally type service, it was in the Jackson, Tennessee area, and this, this, in this service, the preacher was really aggressive, and entertaining, and bombastic, and he'd scream, and yell, and spew some spit out of his mouth, and his vein popped up. Okay, that happens to me sometimes too. But in this, I'm painting a picture of, of this kind of enthusiastic, over-the-board style of preaching. And within that, uh, there was an element of entertainment because that's, that's what does happen in public speaking. And so as the service is going along and he's preaching, he's going, the subject of homosexuality came up. And that's when the guy got revved up. I mean, he started really getting after it. And you could just feel this particular crowd. You could feel their passion rise and their enthusiasm rise. And and he's just going, and there's some clapping, and there's some things that are happening. And then it it starts to, to really get a little uncomfortable for me, but everyone else seemed pretty comfortable with this because he began to just be sarcastic and demeaning. And even begin to use slurs towards homosexual people that obviously it's a sin. And before I know it, the crowd is in a frenzy. It's in a frenzy. And it culminated in this. There were two guys in the front row who stood up in front of the whole church, looked at each other, and gave each other a high five, and then turned around and cheered. All because of this rhetoric that was very harsh and very confrontational. And, and quite frankly, in my opinion, kind of prideful, kind of self-exalting. And I remember that experience because I, I thought to myself, I agree with you about what the Bible says. The Bible says this is a sin. But you're being so ridiculous, there's part of me that doesn't want to agree with you. In other words, I don't really want to be lumped in with this presentation. I, I felt a little bit like I was part of this crowd and this mob frenzy here. And above all the things that were happening, it was unkind. It was not, not civil at all. Above all things, it was very unchristlike. It was very much not in step with the nature of Jesus who has revealed himself through the Gospels and through the New Testament. And that, that kind of, that story has been repeated many, many times. And you've probably been in an atmosphere like that. To me, that personifies the wrong response the church has had in the last 30 or 40 years. And that is why today we're headed towards a crisis that, and I'll get more into this as this talk unfolds, but we're headed to a crisis because there's a huge generational gap between those who are in their 20s and below right now and those roughly 45 and over on on how we're viewing this subject. So this is what happened. Let's pretend uh, that this table represents a balanced view, or or God's view, of this subject. And I'm going to move to your left and tell you a little history lesson. Uh, Around around 1950 and into the 50s, something happened that most of America didn't notice, and really only theologians noticed. For the first time in the history of the church, uh, something emerged, and this is not a slur, it's actually what it is called, Uh, Something emerged called gay theology. For 2,000 years, Christian tradition, from the Roman Catholic Church, the Pope, to all the Reformation churches, Christian tradition has always seen homosexual behavior as a sin and not part of the Christian mainstream. And in the 1950s, some theologians began to reinterpret some of the scriptures that I just read to you and scriptures that I'll read to you before this sermon ends. And just quite frankly, their interpretations are not strong uh, at all. Um, it's really through the filter of, of people who are wanting the Bible to say something. If you just read that on first read, it, it's, in my opinion, impossible to deny what the Scripture says about homosexuality, that it is a sin. But this is what happened, this, this concept, these new theological interpretations emerged, and no one really noticed it. And then something happened called the 1960s. Those of you who were alive in the 1960s, it always comes back to that decade. Everything got messed up after the 1960s. So don't blame us Generation Xers and us Millennials. It's your fault, baby boomers. But it is true. The sexual revolution happened in the 1960s. Free love, free sex, and all of that was was really heterosexually based. But out of that, in the late 60s and early 70s, the gay community came out of the closet, to use their own terms, and then something explosive happened that was very, very negative to the Christian faith is the homosexual churches begin to emerge. And since really the 1970s had exploded and has continued to grow, and that's churches who partake of communion and have elders and bishops and all the things we have in a church, but they're accepting of the homosexual lifestyle. And, and that is an unfortunate occurrence. And so we're seeing that happen in our nation, and, and it's pretty recent. So you have 2,000 years of church history and 35 years of this newest development. So that's over here. This is all this bad stuff that happened here from my perspective. And so, like anything, most of our behavior is a reaction. Most of our behavior is a reaction. So let's, the pendulum's gonna swing all the way over to your right. So we, we come now to the 1980s and the 90s for that matter. And preachers began to, and rightfully so, began to preach the scriptures that I mentioned. Preaching the fact that homosexuality is wrong and it's a sin. And if it was just that, that's a good thing. Because that's what the Bible says and it's a good thing uh, for them to uh, preach that. But the problem is, the filter it came through was that of rage and anger And a warring kind of spirit. Uh, It came through very sarcastically, demeaning. And here's my interpretation, having been part of that as a child and seen that, is the crowd, the audience, who hated to see what was happening to the country, really liked that kind of preaching. So as a communicator, you begin to, okay, let's preach against homosexuality preach against the gays and let's go. And the crowd just loves it. I mean, I mean, they just begin to say, yeah, this is right. And there's this enthusiasm. So what happens is this, is first of all, if a, a, a preacher is speaking and he sees that he's losing the crowd, if I see out there, I see you guys dozing off, something in me says, I need to get them back with me. So I think a lot of preachers of the 80s and 90s said, oh, they're dozing off. Let me bash homosexuals, because that will get them back into the sermon. And and that's what happened. Everybody said, yeah, yeah, there we go. Or if you're, if you're preaching back in the the olden days of 25 years ago, most pastors would preach three sermons a week, maybe Sunday school, four sermons a week. I'm going to tell you this. Nobody is that good to prepare four really good sermons a week. I mean, they're winging it. They're shooting from the hip half the time. I mean, if you really preach it good, you're just, nobody's, okay, maybe Charles Spurgeon. Okay. Maybe RT Kendall, but most of us are not that good. So what happens? You're, you're preaching to a crowd and there's a lull in the sermon and your notes are back here and you're a little bit lost. So what should you do? Well, let's, Talk about the homosexuals because the crowd's really going to get into that. And so this created this kind of vitriolic, angry rhetoric that the church, I mean, really, everyone really loved. Because see, over here, this is a bad thing, this new theology. But the pendulum swung all the way over here. And there's something uh, that's known as the gay agenda. And I'm just going to tell you that that is really real. Uh, A lot of, in contemporary times, people say, well, there's no gay agenda. What are you talking about? Well, yeah, there is. Meaning this, is that script writers and people in the arts, people in the music, use the arts to communicate something, to communicate something. Now, we do that, too, as evangelicals. There's a reason why we have music with Christian lyrics. Because, well, you want Christians And so Christian lyrics help produce Christians. There's a reason why we have the movie Courageous. That was a fun movie to see. Well made within that movie. The movie Courageous. There was a Christian message. Why? Because we want to get out. We have an agenda to get out a Christian message. Well, in the 1980s, in the 1990s, up until today, there has been an agenda in education and in the arts To make our culture here in America believe that homosexuality is just an easy alternative. So that it is impossible practically, in all practicality, virtually impossible today to watch a television show that doesn't have a homosexual person as one of the main characters, even though there's no statistic that has, really, statistics are are messy anyway, but, you know, maybe 3% is generous. There's 3% of homosexuals, maybe. We, no one knows, but it's a very minuscule amount. But yet, in every television show, there is a homosexual person that's leading the way, leading the role. And they're usually the funniest, most clever, well-dressed, uh, most appealing character. So that is this idea of there is an agenda. And if you don't believe that, I'm going to be frank with you, you're just naive. You're just not, there is an agenda. So this is what happens, back to my little illustration here. Here's the war. We have this bad theology. And on top of that, this agenda that's out there. Okay? So we swing over here, and, and we're, we're upholding the Bible. We're upholding the Word. But at the same time, this kind of battle about this agenda here. And so they're like, there's an agenda that we have to fight. And that's made us very, uh, very much in an adversarial position with those that are in that lifestyle. So we're trying to boycott stuff. We're, 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 we're concentrating so much on things like movies and TVs, station, TV shows as if you know it's our, our Christian right to have wholesome TV shows. I mean, whoever said in the Bible that was going to happen anyway? So it creates this war, and now we have a generational war because of this, because and I'm going to stereo I'm, I'm going to totally generalize here, and I know this. But roughly, let's say people 45 and over, 50 and over, who knew in America and knew a world where this was not acceptable behavior uh, and, and, and is shocked that this has happened, has that kind of aggressive language. So people in their 20s now have responded with that with, with so much compassion that they're disregarding the Scripture. And that's why the second thing I want us to talk about is, is a changing reaction. So we're in a changing reaction here. And the changing reaction would be us. The changing reaction would be us. And we're seeing something pretty disturbing that's happening. Is that because younger people are compassionate. Because younger people feel bad when when someone is made fun of or ridiculed or criticized. That now younger Christians... Have swung all the way back over here, and that is the truth. Um, among 20-year-olds, this comes from Jess Rainer's book called Millennials. Six out of ten uh, millennials, which are roughly people below the age of 33 now, six out of ten don't think there's anything wrong with same-gender marriage. And in the church, 51% don't think that. So there's been an issue. There's been a problem. There was a wrong reaction maybe by the church or an overreaction. Not that it was ever wrong to preach those scriptures. Obviously, that's not what I'm saying. I'm doing that this morning. But it's not what was said. It's the way it was said. So now, now there's a softening. There's a compromise. And the Lord wants us to hear his heart on this whole situation. He wants us to hear what he's trying to say. You see, one of the things that has happened is, in the church, we've offered love and compassion and kindness to everyone, every kind of sin you can imagine. If someone filed bankruptcy or someone cheated or someone been through a divorce or name whatever sin you want, uh, and not to say bankruptcy is a sin, but I'm saying, let's say swindling and cheating and those type of things. We offer love and acceptance and partnership and come walk with us. But when it comes to homosexual lifestyle or behavior, all we offer is giggles and jokes and any windows and not really offering any partnership or friendship to offer the truth and love and offer the truth with the compassion that Jesus wants us to have. So, Here's the last thing that I want to share with you. The last point is this is the unchanging response. We've had maybe a wrong response. That is the church of the last three decades. And we've had a changing response, which is us, that quite frankly, is alarming. It's alarming because there is an area of compromise. But I want to talk to you about an unchanging response. And that is God. God's response to this issue hasn't changed. Uh, in fact, culture changes and people changes. And if you look back through civilization, there's always been cultures that have have accepted homosexuality. And, and I think there's a strong argument that, that negative repercussions have come from that. But even in this world we live in now, among Christians, Christians in Europe, as a generalization, uh, aren't really aren't really opposed to homosexual marriage as they should be. Christians in the South and South America and West Africa are very conservative and uphold marriage. We're kind of in the middle. We're changing right now. Can I tell you, none of that matters because God hasn't changed. God hasn't changed one bit. From the beginning, God said, God said that it's going to be a man and a woman. They shall become one. Jesus said that himself. He, he reiterated that. He said, didn't God say that from the beginning before there was a law? The male and female will become one. And so it is that God is completely clear on this issue. That doesn't mean that it doesn't mean that we cannot be good neighbors and be good friends. But when it comes to objective truth, we can't change what God has said. And so we go now to First Corinthians chapter six, and let's go to verse nine. It says it this way. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor adulterers, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality. This is the third verse where this is mentioned in the New Testament. Nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revelers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. We see there that this scripture reminds us that God has a very clear standard, a very clear standard of holiness. And he says, there's certain things you can do and there's certain things you can't. And that identifies our need for Jesus. And within this list, within this list, it's very clear that homosexual behavior among men, those are things that are sins. But also, there's other things there. Idolatry, idolatry sticks out to me. I want to tell you something that one of the biggest cases of idolatry in our culture is our fascination with sports. We worship our teams. We sow more money into our teams and our season tickets than we do the kingdom of God. We idolize our children in trying to make them athletes and stars. I can say that. I'm a big sports person. I'm a season ticket holder for certain sports. But I'm going to tell you something. For many, many Americans, that is adultery. Jesus said himself that if you look lustfully upon a woman, that's adultery. you committed adultery in your heart. Swindling. It's April. Today's what? April 21st or 22nd? April 15th was last week. How many Christians? How many Christians, if they were honest before God, have swindled the government when it comes to their IRS tax returns? None of those things are good. None of those things are acceptable. None of those things are, are, are beneficial. Nor so is homosexual behavior. It's not either. So what does it do? It points us back to our need for Jesus. It points us back to our need for a Savior. It points us back to our need for His redemptive love in our lives. And we, as the church, we represent Christ. We show Christ. We show Christ to the world. And so it is that we challenge people. We challenge, we, we lovingly uphold the truth. We say the Word of God is true. It doesn't matter how cultures change. It doesn't matter how anyone else has changed. What God's Word says is true. But we can uphold the Word with love in our actions, with compassion in our hearts, with avoiding avoiding a, a certain type of hysteria that would create an unchristlike spirit and uphold God's word for the situation. So, think about your weakness. For some of you, you may very well have a a, a weakness in in same gender attraction. That's nothing to giggle about or demean. That's something that that through God's help you can walk in obedience and walk through that and there's a there's a quote by Michael Craven that that I think is helpful for us all if we can put that up there it says the opposite of homosexuality is not the opposite of homosexuality is not heterosexuality it is holiness you can't see that cuz the 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 background the opposite of homosexuality is not heterosexuality it's holiness in other words it means sexual purity for persons of either orientation the truth is this The truth is this, is that all of us must pursue holiness and pursue God and pursue what He has. So think about whatever propensity you might have, whatever weakness you might have. The truth is, are you living according to the Word? Are you obeying the Bible? Are you doing what God said? And whatever weakness you might have, or whatever challenge you might have, or whatever issue you might be dealing with, how how would you feel if people overtly mocked you and ridiculed you? And think about Westboro Baptist who holds up the signs, God hates fags. What a horrible thing, an un like thing to do. How would you feel if you were mocked and ridiculed if you knew what the Bible said and you were struggling with that? And so how should we treat people who are struggling with this? I think that we should do what Matthew 7.12 says. It's called the golden rule. And Jesus said this said, do unto others, or treat... And this is Matthew 7, 12. Whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. For this is the law and prophets. You know what? If I am in a sin, and I'm committing a sin, and I'm walking a lifetime... If someone loves me, I want to know the truth. I do. So you should not shrink back from the truth. Or misinterpret the word. Or change the word of God. At the same time, with love... In compassion and civility and maturity and humbleness, we present the truth in love. The last scripture I want to share with you is a reminder of our great God. Psalms 116.5. It says, Gracious is the Lord and righteous. I like that because the Lord is holy. He's righteous. He's without error. He's without sin. He he is. He, He is completely pure. He knows the best. Gracious is the Lord and righteous. Our God is merciful. Isn't that a wonderful, wonderful way to see our God? That he's righteous, he's holy, he has standards. But at the same time, he's gracious and he's merciful. So we should share the truth in love. We should communicate to our our worldview, which is centered in the tradition of Christianity, that's centered in the purity of the word of God. We should present that. ...with civility and kindness. We should offer love and acceptance... ...without ever redefining what the scripture says. And we should let the sin of homosexuality... ...lead us back to our own sin... ...whether it be that or something else... ...which will lead us back to Christ. That's what he always does. He points out all these sins and all these mistakes... ...and all these shortcomings... ...so that we in humility can go back to the cross throw ourselves purely upon His grace and mercy. You know, a message like this is complex and sometimes the hardest questions in life brings up more questions. And I would be not only prideful but just, it'd be silly of me to think that in a 30 or 40 minute sermon I could cover all the complexities of this issue. I understand that. But I want you to hear God's heart today. That God God loves you. He loves you so much he clearly tells you what sin is and what sin isn't, and he's gonna get he wants to give you the power and hopefully the community, the church community to walk in victory over that sin, from victory to victory. Whatever it is, whether it's the one I addressed today or it's the ones that were on those lists that we read in first Timothy one and in 1 Corinthians six. And those, those lists weren't complete. They were just giving us a list of all types of sins because you know in your heart what is a sin and what is not. We do. You have the Holy Spirit within you. The Spirit within you knows what is right and good and of God and what is not of God. It's not mysterious. It points us to Him. So let's pray about that. You, Jesus, you're a great and mighty God. You're a wonderful Lord. Blessed be your name, and holy is your name. Holy is your name. And thank you for reminding us of your holiness, that you are holy. Because your holiness has demands, but your power helps us meet those demands. And your holiness demands punishment, but your grace covers punishment. Oh, you're good, God. You are simply too good for words too good for words. So God, I pray for those in our community who might be struggling with the issue we talked about today or or any other issue outside of your perfect will. We thank you that there's coming a time when we get to heaven where we're going to be pure of all of these entanglements, all of these weaknesses, all of these propensities to sin. Until that time, teach us obedience, teach us repentance, teach us discipline, teach us... To be gracious and compassionate to one another, because you are a good, good God, and we love you. So I thank you. This is a place of worship. And so we're here to worship you today. Let's stand together in an attitude of worship. We've got a few minutes left together. And we've dealt with we've dealt with the topic today, and now I want us to to broaden our focus right now. Broaden our focus on On Jesus. Whatever you're dealing with in your life, whatever sin it might be, he's here. We have communion available for you if you want to use it today. Communion is always an effective way to check our hearts. But because before I eat the bread and drink the cup, I have to repent and say, Jesus, I'm trusting you fully. Make me whole. Make me clean. So that's available to you today. Certainly, I know not all of you will be taking that today. But if you want to take it both here at the front and the back take it as an individual. You can take it with a friend or or with a companion here with you, with your husband or wife. If you want to use these steps up here as, as an altar. Seek the Lord, those will be available. We'll have a couple of prayer partners at this back wall. And if you have a specific need, maybe you're sick in your body, you need a financial breakthrough, whatever the case is, you need, there's an issue, a parenting issue you're dealing with, some of our prayer partners will be back in the back and we'll pray with you. But let's just take these last few minutes we have together to worship Him. This is a house of worship, this great God that we worship, who has redeemed us, who loves us despite our weaknesses, who loves us despite our past. He is here and I, I forgot to share the most important scripture in this whole message. All right, I forgot to share that. I almost did. that. Thank you, Lord, for reminding me. Let's go back to First Corinthians chapter nine. This is so good. I could I could not miss this out. Don't we've read this already? Don't you know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Don't be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor adulterers, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality. Next slide, please. Nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor the drunkards, nor the revelers, nor the swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Now, that's that's a pretty exhaustive list. I mean, I think that pretty much has all of us covered in this room. Uh, and, and that could be, you know, fairly depressing. But First Corinthians 6, 11 says, And such were some of you. Such were some of you. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. You see, that is what the incredible message is. For those who lie, for those who cheat, for those who are sexually immoral, for those who are in alternative lifestyles, for those who fall short of the kingdom of God which is all of us. We don't stay that way because he washes us clean. That's what some of you were. The Corinthian church was not a bunch of religious people that had inherited their religion from mama and daddy. There were people with really, really rough backgrounds, with really embarrassing pasts, with really shameful things. But Jesus taken everything that was shameful and he put it into something called the sea of forgetfulness. And he said, as far as the east is from the west, so have I removed your sins from you. And he doesn't just forgive us of our sins. He removes the stain of sin. Which means there's no more residue. There's no more memory. We are clean and washed. And that is the gospel news. That's the best news. So whatever it is, our God is worthy. He is here. And we we are different people because of him. Thank you for listening to the podcast of the Church of in Indian Lake.